Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We have come to what many, myself included, would say is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to correctly uh, interpret. And if it's not the, it's certainly in the top ten. But we have here one of the most severe warnings, and at the same time, uh, can be a blessing for us if we really understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. And so we are going to see some hard words today. And though my slide says through verse 12, we're actually just going to take verses 4 through 6, simply these three verses, which are more than enough for our time this morning. And would you join me? We'll pray, and we'll pick up these uh, three very, very important verses in the Scriptures. Father, we thank you for these hard words, these things that we find in our Bibles that, Lord, sometimes we just think of the the immense grace, the rivers of grace, the streams of mercy, the ever-flowing goodness that is your word, and sometimes there are warnings, and we've come to one of them. We pray that your people would be encouraged and strengthened and built up, blessed as we study, in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. At first glance, most people read those words and they come to a very, very, very stern warning. And I believe that ultimately we can look at this passage and draw from it some things that are important for us as we live our lives for Christ on this earth. I want to take you back about 500 years to the Reformation, and I'll take you back to this argument that's been going on for 500 years. Jacob Arminius, who has one stream of thought from which would come Methodism, ultimately the Pentecostal churches here in America, Uh, you, you have this passage to them is that believers are in danger of losing their salvation pretty much all day, every day, to some degree. The flip side, you have in response to that thought, that train of thought, the writings of John Calvin, who puts forth five points, we'll cover those in a little bit, that say once a person is saved, they're always saved. That there is no possibility that someone might give up that faith, never been saved In the first place, there are a number of different things that come to us. But in order for us to understand why this argument still exists, it's important for us to put to rest that very thing. 
the body of Christ should not spend an inordinate amount of time on verses such as these to the extent that they have for centuries divided the church. I personally have co-authored two books on this particular subject matter. And I can tell you that theologians still disagree that well-intentioned, wonderful Christian men and women disagree on the meaning of this particular verse. But I believe that the Holy Spirit does intend for us to understand a very deep truth that's contained in these three verses. And so let's first remember the importance, the importance that is always important, and that is the context of every single passage in the Bible. We use a phrase in biblical interpretation that context is king, and it is. You can never ignore the verses that precede, nor the verses that follow any verse, nor can you ignore the greater teachings of Scripture. So if you have a problem passage, and it seems to say something that you find nowhere else in Scripture, or you find exactly the opposite understanding everywhere else in Scripture, you must look at the overall context of Scripture. You have to look at who this passage is written to. So just like we would do in any investigation, what's important? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so it is important to look at these three verses in context. So who is this written to? Well, let's look at it. The book of Hebrews, we know, was written to Christians who happen to be Jewish. Amen? That's why it has its name, the book of Hebrews. It was written to Jewish believers very specifically. And as we've seen in the first several chapters, they had a problem with what? Going back to the law. Going back to the sacrifices. Going back. In essence, they thought that what a Christian ought to be is someone who is saved by grace through faith, but someone who also follows every single dictate of the Jewish ceremonial law. And I'm using that loosely to describe everything the Levitical law taught, all the ceremonies that they normally celebrated, and all of the feast days. In other words, you needed to be basically Jewish and a Christian. And so that is the context. So what is the specific context of the people who are being talked to here? Let's look at these four things that we can know are true. First, they were once enlightened. Enlightenment in scripture, unlike Buddhist enlightenment, comes from exactly one source. His name is Jesus, the light of the world. So someone in the Bible who is called enlightened is always someone who in the New Testament is saved. They are the enlightened ones. So pretty clear, speaking to Christians. Tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, the gifts that we have are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They come to believers. So the heavenly gift, whether you're talking about salvation, which is the first thing that happens to us, or whether you're talking about sanctification, or whether you're talking about spiritual gifts themselves, you could lump all those into them and say, that also is someone who is saved. Amen? The heavenly gifts are given to God's kids. That's the only ones that have them. Other people can express what those gifts actually are individually, 
But the gift itself is the gift of salvation and everything that comes with it. Partakers of the Holy Spirit is even more specific that this is speaking to Christians. Not people who are kind of sort of saved, but they are partakers literally of the Holy Spirit, which is the first evidence of your salvation. It requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you've had the Spirit in you. That's what happens when you get saved. The Holy Spirit is given to every single believer who professes Jesus Christ as Lord, so they are partakers of that Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, they've tasted of the good word of God and the power of the age to come. That is understood in a way that we can all understand. It's what we're doing right now. We're partaking of the word. We have a desire for the word, the truths that are contained in it. And we understand that this world's not our home. There is an age to come and one day we're going to dwell in glory. So it's pretty clear that the context is speaking about Jewish believers who had a propensity to go back to the law, who were God's children by grace, and to that group of people, these words are written. There are only four really principal interpretations of this passage, and they fall in those two streams of thought that I gave you. They are extreme in both directions. And so while you can talk about both extremes in their extremity, you can also talk about those that believe something along one side or the other, but maybe not all the way to the extreme. So the person who followed the thinking and the lines of Jacob Arminius would be that person who believes that every time you sin, you need to get saved. So that means probably all of you should rededicate your life to the Lord right now. You got up, you thought something, you did something, you acted in some way that doesn't align with Scripture. So the extreme view would be that someone could say something, do something, be something virtually every moment of every day that would cause you to need to get saved again because you lost your salvation. That's the one extreme. The opposite extreme is someone that believes so much in the sovereign workings of God that God must have worked it out this way. So this would be the thought of John Calvin. John Calvin believed that once you're saved, you're always saved, and that because that's true, the only person that could do that accurately would be God. So in essence, God, through his sovereignty, has people who are elect, and there are people who are not elect. And the not-elect ones can't do anything about the fact they're not elect, and the ones who are elect are always saved. And so that creates a group of people who are very special, very small in number, by the way, because I'm not in that group, just saying. Don't consider myself to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. I've got some issues, so if you apply the extreme measure of that, you have this determinist view that God must have created a list of people who are going to be saved and a list of people who are going to be damned, and you're on one list or the other. And we'll dig into this in a little bit as to why I believe both the the extremes, the hyper-Arminian and the hyper-Calvinist, both extremes are both wrong. Now here's the problem theologically. The moment you say you're not an Arminian and the moment you say you're not traditionally a Calvinist, then both those groups put you into a category in the middle called universalists. That also is not true because the universalist view says that 
in the end, God's so good, everybody gets saved. The Bible, plainly in its greater context, does not say that. Amen? Jesus taught an awful lot on hell if there wasn't going to be anybody that would go there. And so when you think about what this passage actually says, it's important to ask yourself another question. Why would God say something like this through the Holy Spirit to a group of Jewish believers who might be tempted to be back where they used to be in the law? It goes like this. I believe this passage ultimately is the strictest warning you find in all of Scripture. Why? For the same reason we as parents warn our children very strongly about things that can kill them. Amen? You, you, don't tell your, you, you do not look at your two-year-old and you go, you know, just decide for yourself whether you're going to walk out in the street or not. Right? I pray none of you do that. Why? Because the reality of the danger is if your child walks into the street, they're going to be run over and killed. So in the very most strict of terms, you tell them, do not go in the street for any reason. If you do, you will die. But what is your hope? That they never, ever come to that place in the first place. On the island of Kauai, there is a place where you can view the Wailua Falls. And I'll give you another example. And you can lay hold of this while we're looking at the rest of this passage. You drive up on a road. There is a wall on the edge of the road. About three feet behind that wall, there is a six-foot chain-link fence. And beyond that, there's about five feet of flat ground. In that flat ground is a sign. It's about 240 feet to the Wailua River below. And the cliff is very unstable. So it has a sign out there that has a picture of a dude doing this with X's through his eyes. Why? There's a wall. Maybe that wall is grace. And there's a fence. Maybe that fence is the law. And there's that flat ground, which seems to be enough for you to walk on, but probably not a good idea, kind of like you're walking the Lord. You would think those three things would be enough, but some people are dumb enough to hop over the wall and over the fence and onto the flat ground to that unstable cliff. So the sign is there not because it's a general reality for those that visit. The sign is there for the person who doesn't pay attention, refuses to do what people in their normal state of mind would understand by the wall, the fence, and the flat ground. So what about eternal security? So here's John Calvin's five points. You see, because I think most of us would agree in the total depravity of mankind. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. Each one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins. On that point, I think probably everybody in this room would agree that man is totally depraved and there's not much we can do to save ourselves. Amen? And the reason I'm showing you this particular set of points, I could have put up Jacob Arminius's five points, but these are easier for you to understand. And so this is how bad this argument got, that for 500 years you have the church arguing over whether you are saved and you're saved absolutely unequivocally, and there's nothing that you could ever do, say, doesn't matter how you act. Ultimately, if you're in God's good graces through his grace, you're saved, you're always saved. And while I believe in a general sense 
that the Bible teaches not only is that true, but salvation originated with God in heaven, and that if you are saved, you're saved, and if you got saved and you can't do anything about it because for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's a gift, I'm pretty sure that's awful secure, isn't it? But then why would this warning exist in Scripture? Why would the sign be there? The second point is unconditional election. I think we all also agree on that. For there's none righteous, not one. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, we could go on and on and on and on, and in the Institutes of Christian Religion, that's exactly the argument that John Calvin made, that these things made sense based on the greater teaching of Scripture. But notice what the third one is. This is what happens when you start arguing over passages like this. And you try and pin God down as to if he says this, it can only say this, it can only mean this, it only is this. When you try and stick God in any box, you're going to find out you don't have a big enough box. That third point's a little troublesome for me. That means that atonement was limited to those who are the elect. In other words, Christ did not die for everybody. He only died for those who would be saved. In other words, when Jesus said, forgive them, they know not what they do, he didn't mean everybody listening. He only meant the ones that actually gave their life to him. That to me is troublesome because the Bible plainly says that for God so loved the world, using the word cosmos, meaning the entirety of it, that he sent his only begotten son into the world, the world through him, again, cosmos, the whole church, would be made up of every tribe and tongue and nation, all peoples. You see, I have a problem with limited atonement. Now, I would agree it's sufficient for those, because I have to accept that grace gift, but that isn't what that means. And so, the fourth point, Irresistible grace. That God's grace, so great, you see, because you need all five of these points to be assembled together for this passage to say that there's no possibility that someone could give away the grace of God. You have to have all five of these. Why? Because that irresistible grace means anybody that ever experienced God's grace would absolutely be saved and they would always be saved. The fifth point. And this is where we get the term eternal security. And that's the perseverance of the saints. This is where this theology originates. That means that if you are a believer, that you will always persevere in your faith. Now let me just recount that to you. I know people that I'm not sure that limited atonement thing is going to work. I absolutely know people that have heard the grace of God and rejected it. And I absolutely know people that have struggled with sin even as a believer. And yet I'm convinced as much as I'm convinced of myself that they were actually saved. So does the person who perseveres always persevere? Or is that perseverance something that happens in your heart and in your mind and it's probably incomplete in most of us? This is why this passage cannot be something that we divide the church over. Because if I take that extreme view, or I take the opposite extreme view, which is the view of Jacob Arminius, 
then I'm going to be in a place where if I'm an Arminian, you're going to be getting saved probably 20 times a day. Because you're going to recognize something that's sin in your life, and you're going to go, oh no, I didn't persevere. So I need to give my life to Jesus again. And if you happen to be on the Calvinist side, you're going to have to fool yourself into believing that you're sinless. That you don't sin anymore. Because all sin carries the same exact problem. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. But this free gift of God is life eternal. And so could it be that maybe somewhere between these two extremes lies the meaning of this passage? And I believe that that is exactly what it is. That it is neither extremity. It may lean more heavily towards the Calvinist side, which I personally believe it does. But the fact of the matter, both extremes create some problems theologically. In these main interpretations of this passage, when you think about it, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them in John 10, verses 29, or 27 to 29. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So there you're kind of like, oh, that's, that's good. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now that's a little different story, isn't it? You see, one is by your action, and the other is by external pressure. Anybody experience external pressure in your life as a believer? Anyone tried to snatch you out of your relationship with Jesus? Have you had any issues with sin or addiction, maybe? Things that have come into your life to where it's just really, really, really difficult and you struggle with it. And you've been struggling with it. But you hate that sin. You see, this extreme Arminius view would say, you're actually not a child of God. Guess what? So does the Calvinist view. They both would say you're not saved. So what's the answer? It's somewhere in the middle. It's God's grace. That's what I want to share with you this morning. So the context here, this book is clearly written to believers. And there, it's, there are clearly these main interpretations One says that you could lose your salvation. One says, hypothetically, if it were possible. Another says, you know, maybe it was kind of a fakey Christian. Now, we could look at that for a minute and say, well, that's kind of what Judas was, right? How was Judas known? He was known as a disciple. He was one of the twelve. Amen? So he was kind of a fakey disciple, if you want to look at it that way. But was he actually saved? Well, if you look at the fruit of his life, one would have to conclude there's a pretty good possibility he might not have been saved. So these theories about how to look at this passage actually all have some merit. With the exception of this is just some massive allegory that really doesn't have any bearing on your Christian living, which makes it kind of senseless to include it in the canon of Scripture to begin with. So there must be some reason that the Holy Spirit left these three verses in our Bibles. Which of these things could we look at and say, well, you know, I, I don't really know. 
Were the Jewish people in danger of going back to the law? That's a possibility as well. You see, any of these four main interpretations that we looked at could be possible. But why would God give us something so strong and so stern, so obviously pointed at believers with an end that seems to be determinative? What was the Holy Spirit putting up this warning sign for? Why is it there? Is it, is it really because we might supremely backslide? Well, again, that could be possible, I suppose. But what is the Lord wanting to say to us this morning? Well, there's a couple of things we know. This book was written to believers, to Christians. It was written to people who had professed Christ by grace, through faith, had believed on the name of the Lord Jesus, and they were in the church. So this verse is for the church. That's the context. This verse is for believers. That's the context. This verse is in light of what has previously been said, which is the Jewish people were in danger of going back to the law and their Jewishness. That's the context. And in view, in that context, is someone who might not be saved and someone who may have been saved but chooses to give away the gift, the very thing that Jesus at least left open when he said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He didn't say you couldn't jump. He didn't say that you couldn't give the gift back. But does that happen? And if so, how often? That becomes what the church argues over. The two extremes, people get unsaved all the time. People are never saved in the first place on the other. Can I just tell you when you look at this, this is not simple backsliding. This isn't somebody who's you know, got a little bit of an angry temper. We did an interesting little Q&A thing out on the island that was supposed to go about 45 minutes with the students, and it ended up going an hour and a half because the questions were so amazing. And they were kind of going around. We talked about everything from homosexuality to heaven and hell and to the reality of salvation. I mean, they were deep, deep, deep questions. But one question came up. Well, you know, are, are, we, are we, you know, are, I don't know about my salvation. I'm not really secure in it. And so we talked about it for a couple of minutes. And when you think about, this is, this is coming from a teenager you think about your salvation and what it is and why you have it and could you possibly lose it? They said, well, you know, if, if we persist in sin, they use this verse. I said, do you know what the Bible says is the last sin? The last condemned sin in the Bible. Do you know what it is? If you know it, yell it out. It's found in Revelation chapter 22. And all liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've told a lie recently. 
because I don't want to expose your sin, but I'm pretty sure there have been some things that you've said that you knew were not actually factually correct, and you had an intent behind them for saying them. That is actually what the Bible defines as lying. So if all liars perfectly do not inherit the kingdom of God, I'm pretty sure there's a fair chunk of you here that are not going to heaven. So it couldn't be sinless perfection that's in view in these verses. It can't be. Or it's not talking about your salvation experience at all. It's talking about that experience that we call a relationship. Let me give you an example of that. For those of you that are familiar with your Bible in Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked Jesus a question. Lord, if my brother sins against me, or Peter's asked the question, how many times should I forgive him? You know what Peter's response was? Seven. I'm awesome. I'm magnanimous. I'll forgive him seven times. So what does Jesus say? Peter, 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 get your foot out of your mouth. I say to you, 70 times 7, if your brother sins against him, you just forgive him, and you forgive him, and you forgive him, and you forgive him. Why do you think Jesus would say that? Because we sin against each other pretty frequently and often. We say dumb things, we do dumb things, we say hurtful things, we do hurtful things. We intend with our actions to wound. We do all kinds of things that are not okay with God. So if you were expected to live a perfectly sinless life, that whole conversation with Peter makes absolutely zero sense. And they're the words of Jesus. At the end of that, Jesus tells a story. And he says, and so will you all be, or some of you be, for if your brother sins against you and you do not forgive him, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you, but you'll be turned over to the tormentors. In other words, your soul will be tormented with unforgiveness. You see, there's a difference between the positional forgiveness that you have in Christ because you've been saved by grace and through faith and the relational forgiveness you have with God every day because you want to live your life spotless as you possibly can. And so this relational forgiveness is clearly what's in view in that, in that passage. God's not saying you're going to lose your salvation because you didn't forgive. He says you're going to lose your peace and your joy and you're going to walk in bitterness, and you're going to be tormented, and your life is going to be miserable until you forgive your brother who sinned against you. Until you say, I'm so sorry. You're going to have that conflict in your heart. Why is this important in the context of this passage? Because God often gives us warning signs. He stops us along the way and says, look, you're going the wrong direction. That is a cliff, and yes, there's a wall, and yes, there's a fence, and yes, there's a piece of flat ground, and you could walk out there if you want to, but why would you ever want to go out there? It could kill you. It might take your life. In this passage, there's no mixed metaphors. If you combine this with Hebrews 10, if we willingly persist in sin having received the knowledge of truth. 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You see, these were Hebrew believers. They were used to having the sacrifice given for their sins. It was the first thing you did when you came into the court. You came through the gate, sacrifice for sins. Then the bronze laver to wash the blood. And then you could approach God. It was purely relational. In other words, it's not impossible for God to give them, for God to forgive them. It was impossible for them to get forgiveness because they wouldn't forgive the very thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18. Something you ought to remember, something you ought to always keep in mind. The words of Jesus are in Matthew 19, verse 26. With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There is a difference between what you can do and what God can do. So when you look at the overall context of Scripture, you have to at least say, this wasn't included by mistake, because all have sinned. This wasn't put there as a way for us to doubt whether we're going to heaven. So why should we care? Because any time you have a warning, the warning is there for a reason. There's a reason you're encouraged to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you cannot work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can be a miserable believer. You might not even believe, be a believer at all if you persist in sin. The reason that Paul warns the church, you know, he's asking, what should we go on sinning that grace might abound? He answers his own question and says, heavens no. We are supposed to live righteous lives. We are supposed to be as sinless as is possible. But there is grace for our failures. So both things are true. It's not one or the other, and they're not in competition. It isn't God's sovereignty on one side and the will of man on the other. They are in perfect tension, pulling against one another, always in the mind of God. God gave you the ability to make decisions of your own will. Whether you call that free will or not, free will implies that you have total control over it. I don't believe that actually exists because we don't have truly free will. You're impacted by the country you live in, by the family you were born in. If you want to talk about freedom, you would have to have complete freedom in and of yourself in every shape or form. Probably free will is a bad choice of words. But you do have a human will. That's why Joshua reminds us, choose this day whom you will serve. That's you using your will to choose to follow God. Amen? You see how that works? Very important. Because in this is in view your will versus God's will for you. Because you do have a will. And you exercise that will. Let no one say when he sins, he sins of God. But each one sins when he's drawn away by his own desires. Amen? So whose will is that? Is that God's will or your will? It's your will. You chose to sin. So in this passage, 
this isn't mixed up. This is not some weird metaphor. This isn't just superficial believers. This is a reality. But it is a reality that exists on the extremity. It is the most pointed warning sign. And so for it to be the pointed warning sign, there must also be the reality that in your human will, you could choose that. But it's not what God wants for you. God doesn't desire for you to test the edge of the cliff. And that's why we should care. I, I, have, I have been engaged in debate. I have sat down with people. As I said, I've co-authored two books. We, we could sit here all day. We could spend the next week. We could meet all day, eight, ten hours a day, and talk about this one subject matter. And probably all of us are going to be going... Well, you know, I, just, I don't know if it was a convincing argument. It is, uh, you know, can you or can you not? Can I just tell you something? It doesn't matter which way you see this passage. What matters is, do you want to be saved? Do you believe that Christ alone can save you? And if you do, that happens by grace through faith. It's not of you. And so whether you never believed at all or whether you believed and fell away, what's the result? You're lost. Hence, my analogy of the warning sign. Why would anyone choose that? Why would anyone choose to spit on the grace of God? Why would anyone knowingly, knowledgeably walk away from the grace of God? Why would anyone hear the gospel and not respond to it? You see, whether these things are intention and the sovereignty of God and the, and the will of man are tugging back and forth on each other, the result is in the middle is for by his grace we've been saved through faith. And that's not of me, that's not of myself, it's not of yourself. It's a gift. God gives you salvation. Because you have believed on the only begotten Son. And then you begin to walk in that grace. And your life is transformed. Your mind is renewed. And whether that's perfectly or not, you are never saved because of what you did. You're saved because the grace that was handed to you is a gift. So all this arguing about can you or can you not lose your salvation actually isn't the question. The question is, why would you not want to abide in Christ? Why would you not want to live in Christ? Why would you ever mess with the grace of God? Why would you have a hard heart? Why would you test whether God was speaking the truth or not? Why would you engage in behaviors that are clearly condemned by Scripture? Why would you ever make this verse necessary for it to be interpreted in its strongest sense? Why would you ever put yourself in harm's way that way? You see, I could believe that on the battlefield, snipers can only shoot you at, you know, 400 yards. Because I've never seen anybody shot from a mile away. 
But I can tell you, you can die from a sniper's bullet from more than a mile away. You see, just because you haven't seen it happen doesn't mean it can't happen. With God, all things are possible. With us, we have to align our will with God's will. And so God's grace is in tension with the things that he requires of us. And so this word here, impossible, applies to you. It's impossible with you. You can go to some place in your heart or in your mind, whether when you're saved or before you're saved or after you're saved. The Bible says you can go to some place you can to where that salvation experience either didn't exist at all or if you had it, you handed it back. God didn't take it from you. You said, I don't want it anymore. Now, I personally believe anyone who actually has it is very unlikely to do that. But the Bible at least indicates that it is possible. Why? It's a warning. It's a warning for you to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's a warning for you to abide in Christ. What Jesus said in in that parable of the vine. That he that abides in me, lives in me, breathes in me, walks with me, talks like me, acts like me, loves like me. He who does those things, that's my real children. You are my children indeed if you keep my commands. You see, there is always a pressure on us to make sure that the fruit that's in our lives looks like what the Bible declares is the life of a believer. That's abiding. That's me wanting to be like my Savior Jesus in every area. So what will happen? Well, I'm not going to sin like I used to. And when I do, I'm going to be really sorry. I'm going to actually care that the Holy Spirit is convicting me. I'm not going to worry that I committed the unpardonable sin. I'm going to respond to the fact that the Holy Spirit has said, Jeff, that's not right. And you need to tell me that you're sorry and then do something about it and then go apologize to that person because you hurt them too. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And as long as you're even considering that, it means the Holy Spirit's still speaking to you, which means, highly likely, not only are you a child of God, but the Spirit is alive in you doing what the Spirit does, which is to convict you of sin and of righteousness. So, what do we say with these verses? Why would you ever ignore this kind of a warning sign? Here's my answer. Don't. Don't ignore it. Make sure that you're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live godly in Christ Jesus. Abide in the vine. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive. You do your part, and I guarantee you God will do his. Amen? Amen. You may not like that answer. 
But I can tell you this. If you don't ignore the warning signs, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to wonder whether that curve, and I know you can identify with this. You're driving on a windy road and that yellow sign, those are warning signs, right? Those are, in essence, suggestions to you. You're not going to get a ticket necessarily for going over that 15 miles an hour around that curve. But it's not wise. And if you take that curve at 35 miles an hour and you crash, who do you have to blame? Yourself. And such is this passage of Scripture. It is the strongest warning sign that I know of in Scripture. So don't ignore it. Abide in the vine. Amen? Would you stand with me? We'll close in prayer. Father, thank you that you are so good that you warn us. And Lord, whether your intent is to put forth something so severe that it's unthinkable, whether your intent is to warn us against not walking with you, whether your intent is speaking to our assurance or our abiding or our security, None of those things really matter to the person who is abiding, the person who is walking, the person who does love as you love and is living a life that's godly in Christ Jesus. This warning will not matter to us if we abide in the vine. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to see the sign and then do something about it with our living. Lord, I pray for anybody that's struggling. Maybe they're uncertain. Lord, the cure to that is for us to just get close to you and invite you to speak to us and minister to our weaknesses. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen us as your church. Help us to not be divided over this one passage. Lord, help us to not pick up our camps and move to opposite ends of the room. God, we will all get our theology squared away when we get to heaven in some way, shape, or form. None of us know every answer while we're here. And so, Lord, help your church to be united, to be as one as you, Jesus, prayed that you and the Father were one, would we be so also. Lord, we thank you for our differences of opinion and pray that we would just simply abide in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.